This podcast is supported by Zoll LifeVest. Sudden cardiac death is a leading cause of mortality in low EF patients with heart failure or following a heart attack. Zoll is proud to partner with your care team to pursue better outcomes together. Visit LifeVestResults.com to learn more. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. My dear Cardi Nerds, it's Amit Goyal. It is with great joy that we welcome you back to the Cardi Nerds Adult Congenital Heart Disease Series, co-chaired by Drs. Josh Saif, Agnes Coxo, and Dan Clark. In this discussion, we dive into the intersection of cardiovascular imaging and congenital heart disease. Join us with faculty expert Dr. Eric Krieger from the University of Washington and fellow lead Dr. John Kochev from Columbia University Medical Center. For additional terrific resources related to congenital heart disease, be sure to check out the Adult Congenital Heart Association, CHIP Network, and Heart University. You can find the links to these organizations in the episode show notes. But before we dive into this discussion, we are so proud to introduce Dr. Shiva Patlola as Cardiac Fit Trialist. As some of you know, the Cardiac Clinical Trials Network was created with a mission to pair equitable trial enrollment with fit, personal, and professional development. We are so grateful for the 18 sites who have signed up for this with matching fit trialists and PI mentors to support enrollment for Paraglide HF with mentorship from lead PI Dr. Robert Mentz. Cardiac Fit Trialists are nominated by their site PIs for their interest in academic medicine, clinical research, and of course, their nerdiness. So Dr. Padlola, we are so grateful to have you join this team. You were nominated by the PI there at Baylor University, Dr. Shelley Hall. Would you please introduce yourself and tell us what you're excited about with this program? Sure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my name is Shiva Patlola. I was born in India and I came here with my family when I was just about a year old and we moved to Mississippi. So that's where I grew up. I went to college at Emory in Atlanta, Georgia. For med school, I went back home to the University of Mississippi. And for the last five years, I've been in Dallas, Texas at Baylor University Medical Center for internal medicine residency and now cardiology fellowship. I'm currently a second year general fellow and I plan on doing an additional year for heart failure and transplant. Shiva, part of this program mentorship is a really important facet and you're right there with Dr. Shelley Hall who has been a leader in clinical trials in the state chapter level. Tell us what it's been like working with her. Yeah, working with Dr. Hall is a great experience. You know, I've already learned so much from her clinically while taking care of patients. Now with the Fit Trialist program, I'm seeing her use her strengths in a different avenue and I'm learning how to balance clinical and academic responsibilities, how to lead teams in different environments. It's really been a, a very productive experience for me and, and Dr. Hall has been a valuable resource and I look forward to continuing to learn from her. Working with Dr. Hall and joining the entire wider Paraglide HF group, how does that uh, integrate with what you want to see yourself doing as part of your career down the road. Yeah, well, you know, this whole Fit Trialist program has been an incredible learning experience. You know, in general, being a part of a clinical trial and being privy to all those discussions in the background has been an incredible experience. It's changed my perspective on the way I look at the pre-existing data in the field. And there's just this appreciation for the hard work that went behind each of those individual contributions now. 
And then specifically with Paraglide, you know, it's a very interesting question and the potential impact in this growing HEFPEP population is, is very exciting. And I'm just so thankful to have the opportunity to contribute, you know, my small part towards this effort. Um, and I think that's really a tribute to the Cardio Nerds family and the growth and integration into the cardiology community that you guys have achieved. I think this is an opportunity I didn't expect to have until I was a well-established attending. So now I feel like I got a head start and I think fellows around the country have opportunities like this because of this podcast that previously didn't exist. So I'm excited to make a contribution in some way to advancing the field forward. I couldn't have said it better myself. I think, you know, as a fellow, it's been so inspiring to see the work of our colleagues throughout this group and, and just extremely motivating to see how much input the PIs, the steering committee members have uh, devoted to our development. So grateful for them and grateful for each other. Thanks so much for being a part of this trial. And we're just so excited for the future work ahead. Thanks for the opportunity. I look forward to continuing to work with the CardioNerds family. Finally, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. CardioNerds is an independent, fellow-founded platform with the mission to democratize cardiovascular education. To continue creating free and unbiased quality content, we are proud to collaborate with all stakeholders, including trainees, experts, fellowship programs, professional societies, industry, and patient advocacy groups. Relevant disclosures can be found in the episode show notes, and the curriculum and content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by Cardio Nerds without external bias. And with that, let's get on with the show. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. I'm very excited to introduce our next episode of our in-depth ACHD series, Multimodality Imaging in ACHD. This is my personal passion in ACHD, and I'm glad to introduce a budding ACHD imager, John Kochev. John is a fourth-year general cardiology fellow at Columbia University Medical Center. During his fellowship, he spent two years performing research in the cardiac MRI lab at Wheel Cornell Medical Center. And next year, he'll be starting his HHD training at Columbia. Welcome, John. So thanks, Dan, for the introduction. Our faculty discussing today is Dr. Eric Krieger. Dr. Krieger is the director of the University of Washington's Adult Congenital Heart Disease Program, where he also directs the training program. Dr. Krieger is a multimodality imager with experience in the applications of cardiac MRI and congenital heart disease, which is why he's here with us today to discuss imaging and ACHD. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Krieger. Thanks. It's great to be with you. So Dr. Krieger, as a soon-to-be ACHD fellow myself, I'd love to hear how you got interested in congenital heart disease. Sure. Um, I think that there's two flavors of cardiology fellows out there. There's the people that knew from day one that they always wanted to be an ACHD cardiologist. That was not me. I started my fellowship actually having no idea that there was even a subspecialty of ACHD. And, and like a lot of academic careers, it's, it's really the product of mentorship. So when I was a fellow at the University of Washington, I was able to work with Karen Stout, who founded the ACHD program out here, and also Catherine Otto, who was at the time doing a lot of ACHD. And both of these people are phenomenal mentors and really successful academics, and they inspired me to go into the field. I always knew I wanted to be in academics, and for me, it was just finding the right fit. I really liked the, the physiology of ACHD, and I also always liked the idea of the deep dive, knowing a lot about a narrow subject area. It's always been intimidating, the idea of being a primary care physician or a general internist where you seem to have to know everything and you're always paranoid you could be missing something. So I liked the idea of a very deep rather than broad subject base. That's great. Dan, what's your origin story? 
So mine's uh, somewhat similar. I was actually a MedPeds resident and like a typical MedPeds resident. I, I loved everything and had a difficult time narrowing down. And so it took me a little while. I, my first love was always cardiology and had great mentorship in medical school by Rick Lang, who got me very interested in cardiology in the first place. But it wasn't until late in my third year of MedPeds training that I really committed to, to cardiology. And that was through ACHD exposure and, and really gaining interest and in doing adult congenital cardiology. So, and likewise, I, I had very early exposure to cardiac MRI. So I had completed a two-week elective in cardiac MRI as a resident and had early exposure and then joined the cardiac MRI lab early in fellowship and completed six months of cardiac MRI during my chief year last year. And unfortunately, they've had pity on me as a PGY-8 and have given me a secondary faculty appointment to read adult cardiac MRI. And I'm also doing adult congenital cardiac MRI training during my ACHD training. So an, an overlap of two different loves there. That's incredible, Dan. You are quite the uh, multitasker. So Dr. Krieger, you've trained in multiple imaging modalities. You've trained in adult congenital cardiology. That's a lot of time dedicated to training. Both Dan and I are committing to a similar road. So please convince us that we're making intelligent or at least reasonable life decisions. I think you're both making fantastic life decisions. I think for starters, the, the idea of a long training course, it's not for everybody, but it really does pay off. I think if you look at a lot of successful academics, it's, it's quite common that you don't just go straight from residency to fellowship to your academic career. People often take the long and circuitous approach. In terms of ACHD and multimodality imaging, in my opinion, it's a perfect fit. First of all, cardiac MR and multimodality imaging is just useful for ACHD. You need people who can interpret the cardiac MRIs and provide the care for the patients. But second of all, it really gives you a deeper understanding of the anatomy. And understanding anatomy, especially if you come from an adult cardiology background, is such a big hurdle to get over. And if you're focusing on multimodality imaging, you're just going to become more comfortable with congenital anatomy. It's going to help you clinically. It's going to help you communicating with surgeons. It's going to dramatically help your echo and TEE skills also. In terms of how to find that path, how to end up as a adult congenital heart disease multimodality imager, there's really not a, a template for it. I think that you need to pick your programs carefully and you need to think of it a little bit differently than how we all thought of getting into the right medical school or matching for the best residency. For those you often just look for the highest profile name that'll have you. I think for really specialized niche fields like a sub-discipline within ACHD, whether it's multimodality imaging, whether it's ACHD interventional or ACHD EP, you need to really match what you want to do with what the program has to offer you and have a pretty frank and candid conversation. Not every program can train people to be ACHD imagers, not even every excellent ACHD program can do that. So you need to make sure that they have the right mentors, that they have a track record of setting people up for successful academic careers like that. They've done it before and really pick your program carefully because not all of the programs are going to be able to fit what you're looking for. Sounds like you guys have been incredibly successful in finding the right pathway for you. It's impressive. Okay, great. I feel so much better. I, I look forward to playing this section of the podcast to my confused friends and family who can't understand why I love being a trainee for so many years out of school. So today we're going to be covering the broad topic of imaging and ACHD. While we obviously won't be able to cover the merits and demerits of all the modalities across all congenital anomalies, 
My hope is that we can break down the fundamental utilities of each approach and then discuss some appropriate clinical applications in a case-based format. So now in 2021, the primary tools in our non-invasive toolbox for diagnosis and surveillance of adult congenital heart disease are echocardiography, both transthoracic and transesophageal, cardiac MRI, and cardiac CT. Similar to an acquired cardiovascular disease, transthoracic echocardiography remains the workhorse imaging modality for patients with ACHD. Dan, why is this? And what are the major pitfalls or blind spots, if you will, of echocardiography across this wide spectrum of diseases? You pick a, a great place to start, John. So I think, as we all know, echo is a technology that's very available. It's portable. It's accessible in most centers in the community as well. It's very safe without any radiation. The cost is not prohibitive. So um, it's something that we can, can readily get without a huge expense. It has really high temporal resolution. So for things, structures that are moving quickly, such as valves that have base apex descent, we can really track them and look for mobile masses like an endocarditis. And then really for valvular heart disease too, we think about measuring gradients across the things and continuous wave Doppler is, is really a workhorse for echocardiography that allows us to assess valves in, in a unique way that other modalities maybe aren't able to. There are particular weaknesses though of echocardiography as you allude to. The RV is a very anterior structure, sits right behind the sternum in most cases, not always in, in adult congenital cardiology, but, but in normal anatomy, that's where it sits. And so the RV can be very difficult to image. We also have issues, especially where I am in Middle Tennessee with body habitus and windows. They, they can come up with echocardiography. And then the particular anatomic variation, such as partial anomalous pulmonary venous return, where you may not be able to see those anatomic anomalies through echocardiography and you really need cross-sectional imaging. A lot of congenital heart disease, a lot of tetralogy transposition have aortic dilatation and so serial assessment of the aorta, which is really a candy cane-like structure. And so assessing that as it dives anterior to posterior and that candy cane type of appearance is really tough without cross-sectional imaging. So I think there's a, definitely a huge use for echocardiography in our field, but there are certain limitations to be aware of. I think you covered it really nicely. I guess I would agree that echo remains the go-to imaging modality for nearly all forms of cardiovascular disease. And even in areas where cardiac MR has distinct advantages, like you point out, quantification of right ventricular function, we still learn a lot. And oftentimes we learn enough just from the echo itself. There are a few instances where I don't bother with echo because I find it to be completely unhelpful. Vascular rings, it's not a terribly useful test. Coronary anomalies, I think that once you've made the diagnosis, following it with echo is not terribly helpful. Partial anomalous pulmonary venous connection, it can be useful still for tracking right ventricular size and PA pressures. But those are areas where I think cross-sectional imaging has huge advantages. Otherwise, I think there's usually a role for echo for all the reasons that you listed. Right. Well, thanks, guys. So, I mean, it sounds like, you know, we, as everybody in here, aside from Dan, who did both med and peds training before cardiology, it, at least did adult cardiology training. And so we think about sort of our typical protocols with an adult echo, starting with parasternal long axis and looking at certain structures. Are there major differences in what we like see in our protocols as adult cardiologists looking at adult echoes from what's captured in a congenital echo? 
I know the pictures are upside down in the uh, apical views, but is that really the only difference? I, I think it's more improv in my experience and kind of my take on congenital imaging with echocardiography. We spend a little bit more time subcostally sweeping to look at segmental anatomy, to look for both visceral and atrial situs so that, you know, where things are. We use the atrial appendage a lot to tell us right or left-sided. We look at cardiac position, whether we're typical levocardia, mesocardia, or dextrocardia, looping of the great arteries, you know, and transposition, if we can see them side by side. You shouldn't see the PA and the aorta side by side. So if you do, then that can be a clue that you have an, a variant. And then supersternally, I've seen a couple sonographers at our center that are incredibly good at sweeping down and getting a bidirectional glen in a Fontan patient so that we can see really the longitudinal drainage of that venous anatomy straight into the pulmonary artery. So I think for a lot of the surgical corrections that have changed the plumbing in our patients, you really have to be a little bit more creative to image that. I agree with all of that. I think that since there's so much variability, that there's a couple things that are important more important in congenital echo than they are in standard adult echo. The first is, while you do need to be creative, I think it's critical to have a systematic approach. And in order to have a systematic approach, you need to think of congenital heart disease in a somewhat organized and systematic way. And there's a couple different schools of thought on this. There's the segmental anatomy set or the von Pragian approach, which many people use, or there's the say what you see, what connects to what approach, which is a little bit more the London school approach. But because things can be found in areas where you're not expecting them, you need to be fairly deliberate about what you're looking for and what you're trying to determine from your imaging. First, you need to determine morphology. As you pointed out, is this a right atrium? Is this a left atrium? Is this a right ventricle or a left ventricle? What's the position of the great vessels? You need to really figure out your connections. So once you've identified the names of your structures, figuring out how they connect to one another. So your right atrium may be on the right, but it may be on the left, and then it may connect to the right or left ventricle through their associated atrioventricular valve. And just being really methodical and organized will prevent you from getting overwhelmed as you do your imaging. I'd also say that because there's so much variability, there's a lot more to be gained from hands-on scanning. You won't really understand the anatomy unless you're the one holding the probe. It can be pretty difficult to follow what a sonographer is doing, particularly with sweeps, if you're not used to acquiring those images yourself. If you're lucky enough to practice in a place with excellent congenital sonographers, you're going to be in good shape, whether that's at a children's hospital with dedicated congenital cardiac sonographers or as we are at an adult hospital, but with sonographers who are really focused on congenital imaging you'll be in good shape and be able to get the information you need. But that might not be the case if you're at an adult hospital that doesn't have a busy congenital heart disease program. You might have sonographers who rarely, if ever, scan congenital heart disease, and you're going to need to invest time in communicating to them what are you looking for? What is the additional information you need acquired that they wouldn't get in a standard adult echo? And it's going to be a substantial investment in time in some situations. You're going to really need to dedicate time to training your sonographers to make sure that you're all on the same page about how you acquire images and how you record data. Got it. That was a great discussion. Thanks, everyone. So to just briefly summarize, transthoracic echo is available and safe. It allows for a near comprehensive assessment of anatomy with some caveats, as Dan discussed, particularly with the additional views and sweeps in a congenital protocol, as Dr. Krieger described. 
It allows for a non-invasive assessment of ventricular function, valve disease, and chamber pressures, but not all patients have great windows. Some areas such as the RV or cardiac inflow or outflow are, are often poorly imaged. So maybe for those types of analyses, we'll want to use different modalities. So I really have to ask, you know, is there a reason why the images are upside down relative to the adult echo other than the arbitrary convention? I have to assume it's not just to trip us up for the boards. Well, I think I'll answer that a couple of ways. The first is that I think pediatric cardiologists would argue that that's how the heart sits in the chest. The apex points down. So when they show an echo image, the apex is pointing down, that maybe it's a little bizarre to have the apex pointing up as a matter of fact. So yeah, it's just a convention. It's just a difference of how it's done. But I think it gets to a broader point of being flexible with changes in convention. And this is particularly important if you spent your whole life training in an adult environment, you did adult internal medicine and adult cardiology like I did, and then go off to a children's hospital to do your congenital heart disease training, what you're going to realize is that a lot of things are done in ways that seem profoundly different from what you're used to. And the first instinct I had, and many have, is this isn't right. I went into the echo lab and they said, oh, we don't use the high right parasternal velocity for aortic stenosis because it overestimates the gradient. And I said, that doesn't make any sense. And they said, oh, you know, we give IV fluids and Lasix together to patients with heart failure. And I said, that's not right. That doesn't make any sense. And I had the instinct to try to correct them and explain why it didn't make sense and why really you did need to count the high right parasternal and why it didn't make sense to give Lasix and fluid together. But what you realize is that well over 90% of what you do, you only do because you grew up doing it that way. It's not particularly evidence-based. It's not based on better outcomes. It's based on convention of the people who trained you and the culture of the institution that you were trained in. And they were incredibly gracious when I went into the echo lab at Boston Children's Hospital and told them that they were doing echo all wrong. They were quite kind and didn't point out to me that I'd been out of fellowship for about 15 minutes and probably they were actually pretty good at doing echo. And it wasn't until much later I realized that I was making an idiot of myself. The, the truth is that what you're going to find is that between adult and children's hospital, there are different conventions. The conventions really do work. And it's best to show up with a eyes wide open, ready to learn, ready to see how it's done differently approach, rather than holding on to the idea that the way you've always done it is the right way to do it. I was not very good at that going into fellowship, but it's often a hard lesson to learn because you don't realize how ingrained these conventions are and how unsettling it can feel to, to do things in a way that's quite different from what you've always done. I'll say one last thing about the upside down echo images. It reminds you of how much of what you know, you know, via pattern recognition. There's no new information in the upside down echo images, but they are really hard to understand the first time you look at them. So be sympathetic when your first year fellows are looking at the normally conventionally oriented echo images, that it's just as weird and unfamiliar to them as it is the first time you look at upside down echo images. And it's only that you've gotten so good at pattern recognition over the course of looking at hundreds or thousands of echoes. And it reminds you of what it is to actually try to learn something new. It's a lot to reflect on because, I mean, it makes sense that, you know, both adult cardiologists and pediatric cardiologists like learn to do what they do, you know, based on what was successful. It's kind of, in my mind, one of the important things about congenital heart disease is like there's need for an understanding for crossover and finding like the optimal situation for patients that, you know, on both sides. So thanks everybody for uh, a discussion about surface echo, but I'm somebody who really enjoys doing TEE because I feel like 
we're able to visualize not just posterior structures, but a lot of anterior structures without ribs or bones or a substantial amount of soft tissue in the way. So in my mind, I think TE is better just in many cases for garden variety adult echo. Where does TE really kind of play a role in congenital heart disease? I definitely am with you, Josh. I think that there's a, a crucial role for TE in congenital heart disease. And I'll just name kind of a few of my favorite conditions where we like to use it. Um, so I alluded to earlier looking at endocarditis is, is one place where we, where we use TE a lot, looking for intracardiac shunts, kind of residual shunts, whether that be with Fontan fenestration leaks, baffle leaks for the detransposition patients who have undergone atrial switches, which is really common. So we like to use it a lot in, in Fontan patients who are looking for baffle leaks to assess more of the complete circuit if we're not able to see it on surface studies. We recently had a patient with a cryptogenic stroke with an extracardiac Fontan that, that has had baffle leaks as, as well as clot in the Fontan that wasn't seen on surface studies. So those kind of unique scenarios, it can be really helpful. We use it a fair amount for pre-procedural planning. So we recently undertook percutaneous sinus venosus ASD closure. And so we use TEE to kind of guide us and size stents in order to percutaneously close the sinus venosus defect in, in a patient that couldn't undergo surgery. Mechanistically, it can really help for valvular heart disease. So really looking at coaptation defects between certain leaflets and understanding exactly where your pathology is arising from and being able to guide your surgeons. TE can be incredibly helpful. So, you know, for a lot of the adult cardiologists that are used to mitra clip and, and tavern, some more of the robust structural space, I think there's a lot of overlap. And I think a lot of potential growth in the ACHD field in the future, really merging the structural world with ACHD. So I agree with all your indications for transesophageal echo. I think that it's a good test for all the reasons you described, the spatial resolution, the temporal resolution. It's particularly important when we're planning Epstein surgery. The tricuspid valve leaflets are really difficult to delineate by cardiac MRI because of how thin they are and really getting a sense of how the attachments are sitting and determining repairability of a tricuspid valve. I think transesophageal echo is useful. One thing that wasn't mentioned, and I'm sure we'll talk about later, is the role of cardiac CT as well in terms of planning for these complex structural procedures. That's a big growth area. And I think that ACHD imagers are going to need to be familiar with cardiac CT as well. Gated cardiac CT is also really important for periprocedural planning. It shares a lot of the advantages of both MRI and transesophageal echo, really good spatial resolution, really comprehensive 3D volumetric set. I think particularly for valve and valve procedures, that's critically important and is actually becoming necessary for native right ventricular outflow tract valve and valve procedures. I think that if you're going to be using transesophageal echo in the cath lab to help facilitate structural cases, you need to get really facile in rapid 3D processing in real time. A lot of us have the leisure of sitting back in the echo lab and spending 40 minutes reformatting our pictures to look perfect. That is not helpful in the cath lab. You need to be able to show your interventionalist what they need to see when they need to see it, which is usually right away. So in addition, the ability to do a good TEE, learning how to use the 3D settings on the fly and really efficiently is important if you want to do structural echo for your congenital heart disease patients. 
Now, Dr. Krieger, not that I am biased, but I've always thought of cardiac MRI as the be-all and end-all for the diagnosis and assessment of patients with congenital heart disease. There's a lot of advantages to CMR, right? Uh, CMR is awesome. It is an incredibly useful technique for adult congenital heart disease. And what we've learned from CMR has moved the field in terms of how we treat patients. And it really is critical to, to managing individual patients too. So there's a lot of advantages to CMR. You have whatever imaging planes and whatever imaging windows that you want, and you're not limited by acoustic windows. You're not limited by pore windows and scar tissue. It allows you to see extra cardiac structures much better than you can by echo. It allows you to visualize the aorta, the branch pulmonary arteries, partial anomalous pulmonary veins much better, particularly if you add a contrast enhanced MR angiogram and lets you see confidently structures that are difficult to view by transthoracic echo. For example, superior sinus venosis defects or coronary sinus septal defects. Coronary anomalies can typically be viewed by cardiac MR, although I think CT is a better test for that. And then, of course, one of the weaknesses of echo that we've talked about earlier in this podcast is the challenge of getting reproducible quantitative right ventricular volumes and function. Now, that's a lot better now with 3D echo and the ability to process 3D right ventricular volume sets in a reasonable amount of time is dramatically better now than it was five years ago. But still, cardiac MRI, I think, gives us, without a doubt, the best analysis of the right ventricle, which is, of course, so important in congenital heart disease. And then finally, in terms of quantification of shunts, there's absolutely no non-invasive imaging modality that comes close. I know people claim you can do shunt quantification by echo, and you can, but it's really much more reliable by cardiac MRI and becomes the, the standard modality by which we'd measure that. Well, thank you, Dr. Krieger. That's a great sell for hashtag YCMR. And I'm definitely sold that this is a really, really revolutionary modality for assessment of adult congenital and also just in general cardiology. But as we already talked about, there are other modalities like surface echo and TEE and there's CT. So if there's m many modalities, then there must be some downsides to cardiac MRI. Could you share your thoughts on potential pitfalls with cardiac MRI? Sure. So first is patients don't really like cardiac MR for the most part. It's a much less familiar test than echo. Patients are claustrophobic. I have a number of patients who said they'd rather have another heart catheterization than a cardiac MRI. Being in the magnet for a long period of time is uncomfortable. They're doing a lot of breath holding. And remember that breath holds are typically at end exhalation. So if you try to sit there and blow out all your breath and then hold it for 20 seconds, it's a lot more difficult to do than it is to hold your breath at inhalation. We need to be aware that some patients have implantable cardiac devices, and these are far more common in our congenital heart disease patients. Most places have protocols that will now allow us to scan safely patients with pacemakers, but they can cause significant artifact. Defibrillators cause a lot of artifact, and oftentimes you'll end up with non-diagnostic quality imaging. Stainless steel coils that were put in to coil collateral vessels, often in single ventricle patients, cause a huge amount of artifact and can make your images non-diagnostic. And there's a concern about NSF, although I will say that NSF is exceedingly rare in the modern era. There were a lot of very worrisome reports about NSF, but now with the newer gadolinium agents, the group two agents, the risk of NSF, even in patients with advanced kidney disease, is really quite low. The other thing is you really need someone who is being thoughtful about what images they're acquiring in order to get useful information out of a cardiac MRI. 
cardiac MRI is not one plan fits all. You need to really carefully tailor your protocol to what you're looking at, which means that to get useful information from a cardiac MRI, you need to have someone who's really tuned into what it is you're looking for and is going to optimize the, the scan to, to get you the information that you need. Got it. Uh, so what I'm hearing is that with CMR, we have the advantage of unlimited imaging planes to identify cardiac and extracardiac structures that might not be as well seen on transthoracic echo. The ability to perform precise quantitative assessment of ventricular size and function, as well as quantitative flow assessment to assess uh, shunts or quantify valvular regurgitation. However, ultimately, we're limited by availability, uh, patient tolerance, and implantable cardiac devices. One thing that you didn't touch on is CMR tissue characterization, which is uh, well-established in ischemic, infiltrative, and an inflammatory acquired cardiovascular disease. Is there a role for tissue characterization in congenital heart disease? Do you give all of your patients gadolinium or just, you know, in certain circumstances? Yeah, we, it, it's in certain circumstances. We don't do tissue characterization for every single ACHD case that comes through. I think that where it's particularly useful is looking for SCAR and the probably most robust literature of looking for SCAR in the ACHD population is in patients with tetralogy and the correlation between SCAR burden, particularly in areas where you're not expecting to see SCAR and arrhythmia risk. So we know you're going to see SCAR in the septal insertion sites at the BSD patch at the ventriculotomy site. But if you see areas of fibrosis that are remote from those sites, we think that probably correlates with your arrhythmia risk. There's also been a lot of nice papers written about parametric MRI with T1 and T2 mapping and congenital heart disease and correlation with some clinical outcomes. Exactly how to apply that to any individual patient, I think, is a challenge. I think that it's also important to remember that T1 mapping really varies site to site, scanner to scanner, protocol to protocol. So it's a little bit harder to plug and play from a nice paper that you read into your patient care at your institution. I think there's a role for tissue characterization, but not as great a role as there is for tissue characterization in diseases like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, ischemic cardiomyopathy, amyloid hemochromatosis, where it, where it has paramount importance. Great. So from a cross-sectional standpoint, we've discussed cardiac MRI, and we made brief mention to cardiac-gated CT. So there are probably situations where one or the other, you know, is probably, you know, more appropriate. Cardiac CT, you know, is just cardiac MRI that we can get more quickly with iodinated contrast. Does it have strengths beyond cardiac MRI? Yeah, I think there's an expanding role for cardiac CT in congenital heart disease. I think 15, 20 years ago, we weren't using CT for much. We were quite concerned with the radiation dose. But more and more, we're seeing that the, the excellent spatial resolution you get from CT, the rapid acquisition times we get from CT, make it a, a very useful test. Certainly for coronary anomalies, it's useful. But with a modern native right ventricular outflow tract, transcatheter pulmonary valve replacement, CT is the modality you need to determine whether these valves are going to fit in the outflow tract. You get systolic phases and diastolic phases and determine the size, dimension, and shape of the pulmonary arteries and right ventricular outflow tract to, to determine whether these valves are going to fit. I'd also say that CT in general is really loved by our surgeons. Surgeons like CT 
in terms of predicting reentry, figuring out how the structures sit in relation to the chest. And I think it's all well and good for us non-invasive adult congenital imagers to say, no, no, you don't need a CT. The MRI will be just fine. But remember, you're not the one there doing the fifth time redo sternotomy, and you're not going to be the one there who's trying to wipe the blood off your loops when you get into the aorta. So we need to recognize that there's a long history of CT being used for surgical planning and giving the surgeons the information that they need to make safe decisions and a safe plan is, is really important. That's, that's another area where, where CT is helpful. Okay, great. I think that covers the fundamentals of multimodality imaging in patients with a adult congenital heart disease. So let's apply this to practice. John, I hear you have some amazing cases for us to highlight the strengths of comprehensive multimodality assessment strategy in these patients, including for diagnosis, disease surveillance, and management. Hit us with what you've got. Sure, let's get into it. So our first patient is a 24-year-old with a history of tetralogy of Fallot who underwent repair with a transannular patch at age two. He's transitioning to adult care and being seen in the ACHD clinic uh, for the very first time. He doesn't exercise, but he works in retail and doesn't believe that he's limited or slower than his peers in any way, at least not as far as he can tell. On examination, his JVP uh, is normal. His lungs are clear. His cardiac exam shows a single S1 and S2 with a grade 2 out of 6 systolic ejection murmur and a grade 3 out of 4 low-pitched early diastolic murmur along the left sternal border. The suspicion here, of course, is for pulmonic insufficiency. So Dan, what's your next step to assess severity and impact? Right on, John. I think, I think you, um, you nailed it. The, they were worried about free PI after a transannular patch here in, in this patient. And ECHO is really the first test to get started. So we can see RV size and function. We can get a sense of the degree of pulmonic insufficiency. And then we can assess ventricular-ventricular interactions in terms of septal movement with a right bundle branch block and get a sense of LV performance as a place to start. Yeah, great. So an echo is performed in clinic that day. It reveals a free PI, namely there is broad vena contracta taking up the majority of the RV outflow tract. On continuous wave Doppler, there's steep deceleration of the regurgitant flow. So a short pressure halftime with early termination of diastolic flow indicating rapid pressure equalization between the pulmonic artery and RV and diastole. Uh, there's moderate RV enlargement, and the RV systolic pressure is estimated at 35 millimeters of mercury. The patient says he feels fine, though. He's asymptomatic. You could call him NYHA class 1 functional status. So we're done, right? See you in a year? Well, hold it right there, John. I think we're not quite done yet. And I think some of this will depend on symptoms and kind of how confident you are in your assessment of this more sedentary patient and, and how symptomatic they potentially are and how confident you are in your echo images that you're really seeing the RV outflow track well. But while symptoms can get you a class one ACCHA, ACHD 2018 guideline recommendation for pulmonary valve replacement, they're not the only thing to account for. So other things in the guidelines are the RV systolic function, the RV size, both in diastolic and in systolic, uh, RV pressures, and then the LV uh, systolic function plays a role as well as progressive exercise decline. So, you know, all of these are components that go into the 2A recommendation. The class one indication is for symptoms, but a 2A indication that if you have two or more of those things I just mentioned, that it could be time for a pulmonary valve replacement, even in asymptomatic patients. So 
I think given the fact that we're seeing RV enlargement and that we didn't have good 3D volumetric quantification of RV chamber size, then this patient would be reasonable to consider one of those cross-sectional imaging modalities. And in this case, I, I love hashtag YCMR as a serial modality to image RV volumes without radiation. And so that's what I would proceed with. And I think you could do that kind of electively, not in a rushed manner in this patient. So the clinician in the clinic agrees with Dan that day and ordered a cardiac MRI. The patient's MRI shows that his pulmonary regurgitant volume is 50 milliliters and the regurgitant fraction is 45%, both also suggestive uh, of severe pulmonic regurgitation. His RV end diastolic volume is 130 milliliters per meter squared and his RV ejection fraction is 48%, so both below the cutoffs, you know, they recommended in those 2A recommendations in the guidelines. As normal left ventricular size and systolic function. Dr. Krieger, how often are you surveilling this patient, and what's your strategy? All MRI going forward, or, or what about 3D echo to follow RV size? Is there any utility in that approach? Sure. Well, first, let me say I totally agree with the decision to get an MRI. That's what I would have done. I think, as you pointed out, the guidelines recommend pulmonary valve replacement for patients with at least moderate pulmonary regurgitation, either if they have symptoms or if they meet any of those other thresholds based on RV size and function and pressure. And a lot of that information you just can't get without MRI. I'll just play devil's advocate for one second and ask what information that you got from that MRI that really you couldn't have gotten at least close enough from the echo. So from the MRI, we got an RV volume, RV ejection fraction, and pulmonary regurgitation fraction, none of which we could have gotten by echo. But from the echo, we already knew that the pulmonary regurgitation was moderate, if not severe. We knew that the RV function was normal because we can identify normal RV function on echo because we've looked at thousands of these. And we probably knew that the right ventricular volumes weren't hundred and 50, 160, 170 ml per meter squared, even though we might not have been able to put a number on it. So that's not to say you shouldn't get an MRI in this situation. I would have gotten an MRI in this situation. Instead, I'll just phrase it as saying, remember how useful echo is for these patients too. You can usually learn most of what you need in order to be able to make decisions from echo, but hashtag yes, CMR for sure. What would I do for this patient? I would follow this patient annually. I would probably not just get cardiac MRIs. I'd probably get annual echoes and a cardiac MRI every three years or so. The reason I wouldn't just get the cardiac MRI every three years and skip the echo is because I'd be worried about missing decline in RV function. So that RV might start to fail before three, four, five years from now. And I'd want to track that with echo to make sure something wasn't changing. But then to track the volumes and determine whether someone's met a volumetric threshold for benefiting from pulmonary valve replacement, yeah, you need that MRI probably in another three-ish years, I think. So recapping for our listeners, we've talked about CMR and its ability to measure this patient's RV function, RV volumes. We've talked a lot about the pulmonary regurgitation, but there are are probably other things we can see on a cardiac MRI when we're making sort of at least our initial assessment of this patient in terms of how they're doing, how their RV is doing, how their hemodynamics are working, right? I would imagine we're not just looking at those initial parameters on the cardiac MRI. No, we and we talked some about the role of tissue characterization earlier and looking for late gadolinium enhancement to 
predict arrhythmia risk. I think that's an important role for cardiac MRI. We know from the indicator studies that right ventricular hypertrophy, and particularly the RV mass to volume index, is an important predictor of outcomes in patients with repaired tetralogy of flow. We can get a good look at branch pulmonary artery. Sometimes patients can have differential pulmonary blood flow. You can determine that from cardiac MRI. So I think there's a, a lot of useful information that you're going to get from that MRI beyond just your pulmonary regurgitation fraction and your right ventricular function. Dr. Krieger, you just briefly mentioned this, and it's not necessarily relevant to this particular case, but as you brought up, common among patients with tetralogy fallow is branch pulmonary artery stenosis. So you're using phase contrast imaging to quantify relative flow to the respective lungs as part of your physiologic assessment. How do you think that those findings compare to the more traditional pulmonary shintigraphy? And how do you use the two techniques in your practice? Yeah, I think either a quantitative lung perfusion scan, but of course that's got a fair bit of radiation associated with it, or a cardiac MRI to quantify flow to the right and left pulmonary arteries. The way that we do it here is if on the navigators or the MRA, there looks like to be any indication of pulmonary artery disease, we'll get right and left branch pulmonary artery flows. Or if there's a stent in one pulmonary artery, we'll calculate the differential pulmonary blood flow. If the patient's got two big, wide open branch pulmonary arteries and in the past, they've had equal pulmonary blood flow to the right and left. We won't necessarily repeat that on every single study. I think there's a real priority to efficiency in cardiac MRI too. You have to resist the temptation to acquire every bit of information that you think might ever potentially be useful to you. Well, fantastic. This was a, a great example of a case of multimodality imaging for an ACHD patient. So we had a young man with tetralogy of Fallot, um, status post transannular patch, complicated by chronic severe pulmonic insufficiency. And as, as Dr. Krieger pointed out, we can get a lot of this information initially off of ECHO, and that'll be a workhorse for us in terms of annual assessment going forward for this asymptomatic patient. And then we can really use our cross-sectional imaging to add to suspicion about or concerns about changes, as well as really precise quantification of valvular disease. Yeah, thanks, Dan, for that great summary. And I think you'll agree with me when I say that, John, fabulous case for a fabulous discussion for fabulous discussions. But I know you have more in store. So why don't you share with us your next case? So next, we meet a 34-year-old woman uh, who is a very active recreational runner. She saw her internist and reported occasional palpitations, so a standard adult transthoracic echocardiogram was performed. The study showed qualitatively right atrial and right ventricular enlargement with normal right ventricular systolic function. Left atrial and left ventricular size were normal. There was mild to moderate tricuspid regurgitation with no other significant valvular disease. Her RV systolic pressure was estimated at 30 millimeters of mercury. Uh, and no intracardiac shunting was identified by 2D or color Doppler across the atrial septum. She's referred to cardiology and ends up in the general cardiology final clinic. Dan, can these findings still be attributable to congenital heart disease, even in the absence of a shunt visualized on standard TTE? What's your differential diagnosis here? John, I love this case. So first, I'm wondering kind of how we're de defining recreational runner. And in, in the back of my mind, I'm, I'm wondering, is this a 10 mile a week versus a 30 miles per week uh, runner? Because as we know, endurance athletes can give four-chamber dilatation and remodeling. Um, and so athletic remodeling is, is a thought and, and is something that I'm actively involved in research. And so that, that's something that crosses my mind and, 
and intrigues me. I'm suspecting that what we're seeing here, though, is preferential right-sided dilatation. And so that's not going to fit with athletic remodeling because it's just the right-sided chambers that are enlarged. And so whenever I see that, I tell myself, find the shunt. And I just keep telling myself, find the shunt as I go through the, the pictures. So I'm looking for anomalous pulmonary venous return. I'm looking for, is there an ASD? a hole in the atrial septum that's that's leading to right-sided chamber enlargement as I go throughout the study. Of course, I look for other things that are common in adult patients, like this was an older patient. Think about, you know, mitral valve pathology, left atrial pathology, diastolic dysfunction of the left ventricle, all, all things that could lead to preferential right-sided dilatation, pulmonary hypertension. But as an ACHD guy, I just keep telling myself, find the shunt in this younger patient. I think on, on a surface study, we know that, you know, really large secundum ASD because of the laminar flow that you can miss atrial level shunting or sometimes because of dropout in terms of the way that the sonographer has imaged the intraatrial septum, you may not be able to see that ASD. And so I think just because we haven't seen it on surface study doesn't mean that we stop there. So for this patient, I think we have to do diligence and, and really look harder for what's causing the right-sided enlargement. The way you're thinking about it makes perfect sense. It sounds like an occult shunt in this instance. If this patient came with that echo, I'd send them back to the echo lab and have them do a bubble study, certainly with a large secundum ASD or even a sinus venosus defect or unroofed coronary sinus slash coronary sinus septal defect, you'll probably see a positive bubble study. But you can still have occult shunts that don't give you a positive bubble study. Partial anomalous pulmonary venous connections will have a negative bubble study, but it may get you to your answer. So the fellow's been studying up and knows that, as Dan alluded to, sinus venosus or coronary sinus defects or PAPVR can be missed on surface echo, and they're aware that cardiac MRI can be used to capture these diagnoses. So they order a cardiac MRI with and without contrast and list as the indication cardiomyopathy. The study is protocoled accordingly with standard localizers followed by CINE images and standard long axis and short axis planes and phase contrast velocity encoded images through the aortic and pulmonic valves. Dr. Krieger, knowing that not every center has a dedicated cardiologist sitting at the scanner and that studies are often protocols by indication and run by text, is it guaranteed that a standard protocol CMR will provide enough information to make sure the diagnosis is made in this case? No, it's not. And it goes to show the importance of good communication. So you did all the right things. You were thinking about a shunt. You just forgot to tell them that you were thinking about a shunt. So that can lead to the wrong images getting acquired. Now, this patient showed up in your congenital heart clinic, even if it's not a congenital heart clinic, you're thinking congenital, and that's 99% of the battle, but you gotta bring it across the finish line by writing on your indication that you wanna look for a shunt, because that's gonna allow us to calculate a QPQS, that's gonna allow us to do an MR angiogram to look at partial anomalous pulmonary venous connections. A lot of times these patients with a big right heart, young patients, palpitations, big right heart are going to show up with suspected ARVC. That's a really common thing that jumps to the referring provider's mind. And they're going to get, get, and they're going to get an MRI for the purpose of looking for ARVC, which is going to give detailed views of the right ventricle. It's going to look for wall motion abnormalities. It's going to look for fat. It's going to look for contrast enhancement in the right ventricle, even though that's not part of the criteria anymore. But it might not look for a QPQS which is, as you've pointed out, a really common cause of right heart enlargement in young patients. It's 
a limitation of cardiac MRI that not all scans can acquire all the information. And a, quote, comprehensive scan that gets everything is not a good scan because that's a two-hour, two-hour, 15-minute scan, and your patient's going to tire out. Your image quality is going to suffer. The patient may not finish this scan. And also, it's going to cut down access to your scanner. You're going to have problems getting patients in because your scans are taking twice as long as they need to. So you need to be deliberate in what you ask for. And the person protocoling the study, whether it's a radiology fellow, cardiology fellow, or imaging attending, needs to be careful to to specify what information they're looking for. At our center, we get a QPQS on every ARVC case for this exact reason, but we don't do it on cardiomyopathy cases. So you just need to be careful and be a good communicator. It's a super important point, and I bring it up because it's a pet peeve of mine when, you know, as a burgeoning cardiac MRI reader to have read an MRI with the available images and for the recommendation to the provider ordering the study to be, please order another cardiac MRI so that we can figure out what's going on here. And so that highlights the importance of communication in the ordering provider to make sure that the study is protocoled appropriately for the question that's being asked. So in this case, the cardiac MRI was performed and the report indicates uh, a moderately dilated RV with end diastolic volume of 157 milliliters per meter squared and a normal RV ejection fraction of 53%. The RA is moderately dilated. The RV forward stroke volume is estimated at 138 milliliters by phase contrast compared to an LV stroke volume of 81 milliliters corresponding to a QPQS ratio of 1.7. The Cine images do not reveal an evident intracardiac shunt. The fellow is concerned enough by stroke volume differential that they give you a call to ask for advice. So what additional approaches can we take to clarify what's going on here? Do we do a CTA to look for pulmonary venous anomalies? Do we do a TEE to make sure a sinus venosis or coronary sinus defect wasn't missed? Or do we go back to the MRI scanner and perform additional imaging sequences? What are your thoughts? So you figured out there's a shunt, but you don't know where it is. And you didn't acquire the information that you wish you had in retrospect. But what I'll say is that, first of all, even just by going back and doing a really careful review of your localizers, your axial scouts, you may figure out what's going on. It may not be enough to bring the patient to the operating room, but it may be enough to make the right diagnosis. At this point, what would I do? At our center, we would recall the patient at no cost to the patient and add in an MRA sequence. You could certainly do a CTA as well in this situation. You have all the physiologic information that you need, and now you just need anatomic definition. You could get that from a CT or an MR. I suppose you could also get it from a transesophageal echo, probably. You could probably get it if it's a superior sinus venosis defect and you know how to look for one of those. You can probably get it if it's a coronary sinus septal defect and you know how to find one of those on transesophageal echo. You may not get it if it's a single anomalous, partial anomalous pulmonary venous connection, let's say a left upper vein to the anominate vein. That would be a tricky one to pick up by TEE, probably easier by transthoracic, to be honest. But I think I would just bring the patient back and finish the scan that we should have gotten off the bat. Got it. So it sounds like either a TEE or a CTA or a well-protocoled MRI with MRA are reasonable approaches to make the diagnosis here, which in this case is a sinus venosis defect with anomalous right superior pulmonary vein to the superior vena cava, the treatment for which was a baffling of the anomalous pulmonary vein flow through the sinus venosis defect. 
Yeah, I was just going to say, I think that superior sinus venosus defects are often missed by transthoracic echo. And it's a real example of an anatomy where cardiac MR gives you all the information that you need to make the diagnosis and plan your repair. But for patients with secundum type defects, TE is the winning approach for interventional planning, correct? Well, I think so. I think TEE is good for interventional planning. I guess the question becomes whether it's, whether it's really necessary for interventional planning. So what do we need to know? We need to know whether the hole is closable in the cath lab. We need to make sure it's not too large. We need to get a sense as to whether there's adequate rims. And we need to make sure that the pulmonary venous connections are normal. So certainly for getting a size of the sense of the hole, TEE is good. Although TTE or MRI often gives you as much information as you need. Because remember, they actually plan the closure device sizing in the cath lab using a sizing balloon and measuring it in the cath lab. And the structural planning can be done via ice. In terms of determining that there's no anomalous pulmonary venous connections, you can usually say that with a good degree of confidence from transesophageal echo. But I think we've all been in the case where we've been hunting and pecking for that right inferior vein and can't confidently say we found it in an individual patient, even though we theoretically know what we should be looking for. So in my practice, I actually get a cardiac MRI before secundum ASD closure. It gives me information on the pulmonary veins, and it lets me know that the hole is not too big to warrant an attempt in the cath lab. And that's usually as much information as I need. It's true that the rims can be difficult to detect because they're often quite thin and below the spatial resolution of cardiac MRI. So you get partial volume averaging and might miss something, but you usually get as much size information as you need from the cardiac MRI. But TEE is a, a great test for secundum ASDs. All right. So we've taken care of two patients and required several imaging modalities to diagnose and treat them. So it sounds like all that training was worth it after all, Dr. Krieger. Our goal was to demonstrate the diagnostic utility and necessity of a multimodality cardiovascular imaging approach in adult congenital heart disease. And hopefully we did that. Well, thanks, everybody. I've really enjoyed the conversation today. I've learned a lot about imaging modalities and how they work with different types of congenital heart disease. It's been an eye-opening conversation about how broad ACHD can be as a field and how it overlaps with so many other different specialties in cardiology. Jonathan, we'd love to hear about what drove you toward ACHD and about your career plans moving forward. So when, when Dr. Krieger mentioned at the beginning of the podcasting section that there are two types of people who go into congenital heart disease, I'm in the former camp. I can think back to my first year of medical school when one of the cardiology professors put a picture of a Fontan up on the screen in a PowerPoint presentation in one of our lectures, and my jaw just dropped. I thought it was the coolest thing that I had ever seen that, you know, a single ventricle was being used to perfuse a patient. And I've kind of never looked back. I think because of how long the training pathway is, there have been many times when I tried to convince myself to not go into congenital heart disease and me going into cardiac MRI was an attempt at that. But then I imaged patients with congenital heart disease and I realized that, you know, that was my true love after all. So it's a love I can't break and I'm excited to be going into it and starting my adult congenital journey next year. John, thanks for sharing that perspective. And we are excited to follow you along as you continue on this terrific and tremendous journey. Team, what a wonderful discussion. We were incredibly comprehensive, thorough, and just threw out tons of pearls. But Dr. Krieger, before we let you off the hook, we'd like to ask our fan favorite question that we ask all our series experts. What makes your heart flutter about adult congenital heart disease? Well, it's a hard question. 
I think a couple things. The first is the ability to go back to fundamentals of anatomy and physiology is always exciting. And I don't think it comes to anywhere quite as well as it does in adult congenital heart disease. But to be honest, it's actually the ACHD community out there. It is a cool group of people. It's people both at my own institution, but just a group that you work with around the country and internationally is the kind of people I want to be working with. So I like being part of the community. I like the physiology and it's just an awesome group of patients too. So that's what I like about the field. I was just going to say, we feel, the feelings are mutual. We feel the same way there. So <laughs> I'm watching all, all four of you just smile at this answer. <laughs> like, what am I missing out on? I want to be part of the kids. Okay. Not too late, man. You can still do it. All right. Well, thanks everyone so much for joining us today. I hope you had fun listening as I did. Thank you.